Terrell Owens, record-breaking former NFL wide receiver and pro football Hall of Famer. He became a rising star during his eight years with the San Francisco 49ers, taking the torch from his football hero. Breathing the same air as this guy, it's hard to put into words. And though his receiving yards and touchdown numbers speak for themselves, he was known just as much for his showboat antics, locker room conflicts, and battles with the front office. All they're concerned about now is that, you know, I was labeled as being selfish, um, I was being greedy. We sat down with T.O. in Los Angeles in 2013 and began where we left off eight years prior. I was in college, just starting out as a freelancer for ESPN, and Owens was among the NFL's top stars. Neither of us knew this interview would be a turning point in his career. During our 2005 discussion, I asked Owens about the Philadelphia Eagles' failure to acknowledge his historic 100th touchdown. It was an embarrassment. You know, like I said, it just showed the lack of class that they had. And the performance of teammate Donovan McNabb. Your friend, Michael Irvin, recently said that if Brett Favre was the starting quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles, they'd be undefeated right now. What do you think of that comment? I mean, uh, that's a good assessment. I would agree with that. His responses ignited a media firestorm, and the Eagles subsequently suspended Owens for the rest of the season before eventually releasing him for good. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I actually, I thought an appropriate way to start would be by apologizing for uh, the, the last interview we did back in 2005. I, I put this in the letter you know, that, that I, I sent you. The apology, I mean, it's similar to what I put in the letter, but it's really two-pronged. First, for how it was portrayed. Um, you know, we talked for an hour, profile interview, and I think you'd probably agree, talked about just about everything you could want to cover in an hour-long interview with you, from notable moments from your career to racism you'd encountered growing up to your grandmother's Alzheimer's to the controversial topics. But, you know, those were five minutes of an hour-long interview. Uh, those five minutes were all that aired on SportsCenter. Right. And on one hand, I understand from a news entity's perspective, there's limited time. You got to air the most newsworthy content, and five minutes is a lot of time to get on SportsCenter. But I also understand from your perspective, you're like, crap, I did an hour-long interview with this kid, and for what? You know, just so I can get some negative headlines? And I firmly believe, as I might have said to you before, if more of that interview aired, the controversial comments would have been given additional context where it would have been minimally far less likely that you would have ended up being suspended by the team for the rest of the season, at least in my opinion. And the second part is, and this I think bothered me more than anything, um, after the interview, you know, after the suspension and all of that, I got a call from your publicist and she asked uh, if I would be willing to speak at, at your arbitration if you guys felt it warranted. And I declined. And I declined, you know, based on guidance that I was given. I, I should have said absolutely. Um, now, granted, I mean, in fairness to me here, you know, I'm a 19-year-old college freshman at the time, barely know how to tie my shoes. Um, but it's like, if I'm man enough to ask you to do an interview, if I'm man enough to ask the tough questions during the interview, if I'm man enough to have, 
you know, a national platform to air the interview on. I should have been man enough to say I'd be there at your arbitration hearing. Um, so I, I apologize for that as well. I appreciate that and uh, apology accepted. When, when we left that night, to what extent did you think your comments would make news? I had no idea. I thought it was just one of the many interviews that I had and was going to have, you know, uh, after that interview that, you know, we did it. I, I felt that it was harmless. I, I really didn't think about anything, you know, um, as far as the content was, uh, was concerned. Um, I just, I, as you said, I just thought it was just a, a normal, fair interview and, and again, you had no control of um, what was going to be, uh, I guess, aired, you know, the next morning. And so, for me, but it just that doesn't preclude me from responsibility, though. You know, I just want to make sure. You know, when I apologized, right. I, it was still my decision to put you in right. that and position too. In so all fairness, I, I definitely share responsibility. Right. right, and in all fairness, like I said, I, I was willing to give you that interview. I we, we set it up and we had it, and and that was it. You know, I didn't think too much of it. You know, um, obviously, you know, now we we know that ultimately. You know that was pretty much uh, the fate of my career at that time with at my stint with the uh, um, with the Philadelphia Eagles. What was your reaction when you first either saw the interview on ESPN or when somebody told you uh, about what was being reported? Well, it was more so when I w when I got to the facility and all the all the, all the highlights and um, H had you seen it before. No, I didn't see the, the interview in its entirety. Yeah. Um, again, they had taken, you know, I guess snippets, little pieces, right. uh, clips from from the interview, and that was that was the headlines, you know, all that morning. So I was sitting at the table at breakfast, and and obviously, you know, all the comments were about, you know, the headlines. I threw a Donovan under the bus, and you know, um, I made some comments about the about the organization um, in regards to, I think, my. 100th touchdown or something right. like that and um, again but more the focus was on the fact that they felt that I you know I undermined um, you know Donovan's ability as a quarterback and again as you said had, had everyone seen the, the interview in its entirety they would have gotten a definitely a, a different view of what happened outside of the, the, the headlines that you know, ESPN aired. Um, again, I was trying to put the fires out because I had teammates, leaders on the team, um, such as your Brian Dawkins and and Jeremiah Trotters, um, you know, people that was like, you know, what is this? Where is this coming from? And you know, I remember going into uh, Rick Burkholder's office, which is a trainer, and, and talking to Brian Dawkins about what had just transpired, you know, the night before. And so I'm just like, dude, I'm like, you have to look at the whole in, whole in, interview, um, the whole interview. And so basically we tracked down, you know, the transcript of, of, of everything. And I basically, I already explained to him, I'm like, look, this is what ESPN aired. This is really what I said. I said what, what I said then, but there was another part to that. And that's not what everybody saw. And, you know, t still to this day, people still don't know. Um, all they know and what, all they're concerned about now is that you know, I was labeled as being selfish. Um, I was being greedy. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I just had a just rough time, 
you know, after my first year, um, going into my second year with the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, but again, I had no idea, you know, that, you know, me saying that I, I agree with Michael Irvin's assessment of that comment would really, you know, be a turning point uh, in my career and obviously, um, you know, obviously lead to the, the short stint there in, in Philadelphia. And, and a couple other just brief comments or questions about uh, our, our last interview. Um, there were a couple things you wrote in the book about the interview that, I mean, in fairness, I, I disagreed with. You, you wrote in the book how, like, I, I kept pushing you during the interview, backing you into a corner. I mean, did you feel that during the interview, or was it, like, after the fact, after, you know, the headlines, that when you kind of look back at the interview, you're like, oh, well, maybe he was... Well, I think um, probably, I guess, in fairness to, um, to address that and, and probably what I was thinking at the time in, in writing the book, um, I think there's probably a lot of emotions um, that, was, that was probably resurfaced. Um, and then me really trying to um, really reflect back on um, the interview itself at that time. And me probably, I guess, you know, I guess when I say that, probably that just maybe there were some difficult questions that I was probably a little bit uncomfortable answering, but I okay. did it. I did it anyway. So, um, again, I, I apologize for, you know, obviously, you know, me saying, I guess you were pushing me in a corner in a sense, but I, I think it was more so just the difficult questions. Um, you know, like I said, me really didn't know, knowing where those questions or my answer was going uh, to lead to um, or, or, or take at that time. At that time, when you were writing the book, when you were emotional, as you're saying, what did you think my intentions were during that interview? I mean, I, I always felt that your intentions were very innocent. Um, again, I, I don't blame okay. you solely okay. for, for anything that happened. Um, because again, I read it like, right. I, I felt like you thought I was, that I was trying to like bait you. or No, or not at all. I mean, I, again, now me knowing more so about, you know, how the media is and and how they use sound bites and and clips and headlines to to, to grasp and grab the audience's uh, attention i get that now you know and so uh, me being you know early in my career just them knowing that i was pretty much an open book i i answered honestly um, i gave some interesting sound bites um, they knew i was a pretty much a emotional passionate person um, to where I kind of just said what I felt and uh, they knew that I, you know, I was passionate about it. And, you know, for me, I look back on it, it's a growing process, you know, it's, uh, it's something that now I have kids, you know, they're going to go back and Google and, you know, there are going to be questions uh, that they ask me and things that are going to come to the surface that, you know, that I can share with them and, and kind of lead them and guide them on what to do and what not to do, uh, what to say, what not to say, and, and really give them an education on what politically correct means and so whereas for me I didn't have no idea what being politically correct meant at that time and so for me now that I look at for me that was almost like lying in a sense that's lying to me mm -hmm. um, but I guess it depends on how you deliver your answer and the message that you're, that you're trying to get across and so my grandmother always told me to be honest and right. so that's, that's what always I, what I had at heart when I did interviews. So I guess the last question I had for you was, how did, at least at that time, the interview kind of change your opinion of me? Because, you, I mean, there, in fairness, there definitely seemed to be some noticeable frustration, even though in the book you said, I asked questions, you know, any good journalist would want to ask. Well, I just think, I mean, I, I just never really felt that, you know, 
doing an interview, you know, at that time, which I, which I felt was harmless, you know, would, you know, take my career, you know, to a turn of, of, of where it was. But, you know, it happened. There's nothing I can do now to go back and change it. Um, and yeah, like, yeah, my feelings were hurt. Um, you know, I lost a lot of money going through that situation. Um, there was a lot of lies told. Um, but again, you know, and it was a constant battle to sit up there and really try to defend myself, you know, with the media because every time I did an interview or I tried to constantly defend myself or explain the situation, something else was coming out, was coming out with that interview, then it's another topic. And it's like, oh, he's always saying something. He's not taking responsibility. When at that time, I, 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 I took responsibility, maybe may not have said it publicly, but I know that there's, you know, always, you know, two ways, you know, about everything. It's three ways. It's always their side, my side, and there's always the truth. And so I just, at that time, just really just trying to find my way, you know, uh, really without a whole lot of guidance. Going back to when you first started with the Eagles, how close were the two of you initially? Man, we were, I mean, we were, I mean, like two peas in a pod. We were, I mean, like he brought out in me what I didn't think I had in me was a little bit of more social person, personal uh, personality, so to speak. Um, you know, I, I think me seeing his personality allowed me to be myself because I was so reserved, you know, to an extent, um, to, to where people only saw my passion and they, they saw that smile or whatever, they saw that on Sundays. But outside of that, I was kind of like just reserved. I was pretty much all business. Um, that was due to probably with the way I was raised, because I mean, I really didn't get to do much as a, as a kid. I was kind of sheltered in a sense. Um, grew up in a, in a strict household. So just to be around Donovan, you know, and to see that he, you know, he had fun, you know, on the field and off the field. I mean, his personality was, you know, big as Lincoln Financial Stadium. And so, um, I mean, we had fun. I mean, playing in the Pro Bowls together, um, knowing that, you know, I came there to be with him and the Philadelphia Eagles with the, the whole grand idea is to win some Super Bowls and, and get to the Super Bowl and, and, and win. And we, we got part of the, we got part of that, you know, uh, we were successful in part of that by making it to the Super Bowl, we just didn't win. Um, and then, obviously, like I said, after the, after the first year, you know, wanted to get somewhat uh, a contract extension or a renegotiation of that contract, and it didn't happen, things happened. But, but before you even get to the second year, it seemed just from reading your book that the turning point was actually a moment in the huddle. Explain what transpired where in the huddle he basically told you to shut the F up. Right, and, and and I think he thought that I was really trying to take over the team, or you know, me be the focal point. What what was said in the? I mean, what did you um, say? I in just the basically that... came to the huddle and told him we had ran a, we had run a play, and the play was supposed to come to me. I ran the play just like we did in practice. Ran it. I was open. He didn't throw me the ball, so I just basically just you know I told him like I was open. I wasn't demonstrative about it. I wasn't aggressive. I wasn't abrasive with my, with, with my tone. I just like, you know, has a, if I, any other time that I've been in the huddle, you know, talking and just communicating, I was like, yo, I was open. 
and he took offense to it and he, he said what he had to say and you know I didn't say too much at that time and I just felt you know at that time you know again I'm trying to do some right things here so I didn't address it at that moment I waited till after the game to address the issue what what subsequently transpired in the locker room well I just basically just told him I was like you know you're a man just like I'm a man I was like you know I have a I have I have a mom you know I have a grandmother they don't talk to me that way so I didn't feel that he should talk to me that way you know um, especially if we're trying to um, achieve you know the same thing and you know we're trying to achieve the same goals and reach them and in order to do that we have to communicate and again I didn't come at him you know abrasively in the huddle as he did with me so I just you know moving forward just so that wouldn't happen I just wanted to express how I felt and I felt like I me approaching him I didn't approach him in a, in a bad way I felt that that was part of me growing up and learning from mistakes that you know that I had made prior why do you think he started acting differently towards you um I think uh, I mean looking back on it now just because I mean this I mean the city you know open you know welcomed me with open arms um I mean it was I mean I came there for one reason only they felt the city felt like that I was the missing piece the missing link to that and I think you know obviously he was a little slighted when he got drafted there um, that the city didn't want him as they embraced me when I got there and I think there was a little bit of a resentment maybe I'm not speaking for him I think just speaking from my my perception I want to take you back to when you were growing up in terms of how well off you were then how much of a struggle was it for your family well, I think uh, it was one of those things that you really don't, you're really not conscious of as a kid. You know, you don't understand the struggles of your parents because they're always going to try to put and make things in the best light that they can. Um, and, you know, just now that I look back and I think about some of those moments, you know, I can, you know, it's kind of hard to tell that they were struggling, but, you know, now you know, listening to stories and knowing that my mom had to work two and three, two and three jobs, um, knowing that, you know, she had to use her skill set, you know, uh, being a seamstress to, to make our clothes. You know, for me, I thought it was just maybe just a hobby. But she actually just didn't have the money to buy us, you know, all those nice things that she wanted to. But the things that she made us and the clothes that she put on our, on our back, that was, you know, she can't put a price on that, you know. Your grandmother. Uh, Alice Black. Uh, I, I understand once the street lights came on, your day was over, even if, even if it was light outside. Uh, how tough was she on you? Yeah, she was. And I mean, she raised us how she was raised. And that was, that was, that was strict, you know, and whatever she said, however she said it, that's how it went. It wasn't any back talk, you know, like a lot of kids now do to, to their parents. That was really unheard of. And I think I'm sure you hear a lot of uh, older guys and just older people, you know, that grew up in that era that or during that time, during that generation, they kind of, they, they frown upon the fact that now, you know, you can't spank your kids now. I mean, it's considered child abuse, you know, if you, to, to, to whatever degree you know, you're, you're whipping or spanking your, your kid when back in the day that was just a way of living in order to, to be mindful and re be respectful of, 
of number one of adults and just you know just a way of of life and, and how to survive and, and how to grow up. That's how it was. And I understand along those lines, uh, you didn't want to be called up on your grandmother's porch. She had a nice little switch on her, I, oh, I understand. Oh yeah, trust me. I mean, it, it's it's one thing to, to, to know that you're gonna get, get a whooping, you know, for something. But, you know, when sometimes when you have to go get what you're gonna be getting whooped with, that was, uh, and, and she knows, she, and she knew, like, I mean, if, if I had to get in trouble, if I was going to get in trouble or I got in trouble about She'd something. she make you go get it? She, go get a switch, <laughs> and it better not be no little switch. <laughs> so it had to be something appropriate, you know, in order to get that whooping with. It couldn't be some flimsy little, you know, tree limb that we, we, we went and broke off. So, or it was going to be worse. Or if we got, if we got, not in our turn, we got beat with a belt, you know? So, I mean, it was times where you got, got whippings, where you got with switches, you had welts all over your body, um, belts, where there was welts all over your body. We didn't think anything of it, which, that's what you get. Those are the consequences that you bear when you do something wrong and you don't mind or you don't uh, obey, you know what I mean? So. That's just how, in our, in our community, in our culture, that's, that's how we were raised, and I really didn't think too much about it. How would you explain the role that she played in your life? Well, I mean, she's definitely instrumental in, in who I am today, and I guess that depends on, you know, who's making that assessment, but I mean, she's, she's done a great job um, as far as uh, who I am as a person um, and who I, who I am as a, as a man. Um, anything you know, short of that, you know, I think that that falls on my shoulders, uh, for the responsibilities of of being a father, um, me being, you know, the best boyfriend or whomever that I can be to a significant other. Um, but you know, I, she did a great job, you know, raising me. You know, I can't be any more proud of her um, than I can. Is there one lesson that your grandma taught you growing up that? particularly sticks out? Man, just now, just, you know, yeah, just to keep the faith, you know, just remain faithful uh, no matter, you know, how how steep the hill may be to climb, how, how, no matter how great the odds are against me. If you got faith in God, it doesn't matter, you know. It's God moved mountains, you know, and who said a mountain couldn't be moved? But I mean, with faith, you know, Somehow it can be moved, no matter what, and I think that's how that's how I see things. Even with my situations now, I'm like, well, how am I going to get out of this situation? How am I going to get back on the right track? And even when you know I, I I tend or I think to start to have bad thoughts or my mind start to go astray, I I hear my grandmother's my hear her voice. You know, it's, you know, it's with all you know with faith, all things are possible. With your grandmother, how hard was it for you watching her memory start to fade due to the Alzheimer's? Man, it, it was it was tough, you know, and you know I've, I had to become very knowledgeable about the disease and 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 knowing the process and the first stage of stages of it is is dementia and obviously um, it progresses into Alzheimer's. Um, it was tough. It was tough knowing that you know the lady that raised me, um, you know, and. She was there physically, but mentally she, she wasn't. 
She didn't remember really anybody else but a couple of people. But when I was in front of her and my mom would ask her, like, who is that? It would, you know, initially, you know, I would go and she was like, she, that's Terrell. And then it got to, to be a little bit more delayed as the years went along. It took her a minute to kind of figure out and she would look at me, you know, and, but she, it would register and she would say my name. And they got to a point where, you know, she didn't say or talk about much at all. But I understood, you know, as I, as I said earlier, became knowledgeable about the disease and being able to speak before Congress, you know, along with Mike Marks and some others, um, you know, back in 2001, I think, um, that was really, you know, um, me just really just, you know, being a spokesperson, me, you know, being on the platforms, memory walk boards to do whatever I could, you know, in order to try to find a cure for the disease. What do you miss about her? Man, I miss her face. I miss her smile. Um, dude, I would, if, if I could do it all over again, I would do it all. I would grow all over, grow up all over again. Um, you know, the whoopings, everything, the good times, the bad times. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. Um, you know, I just, you know, just, just man, she, she just meant, she's meant so much to me and my career and. Uh, when I when I started out in '96, man, you know my family meant so much, knowing that the odds were against me of making it into the NFL, and I wanted to make it for for them, you know, and you know so they wouldn't have to to suffer or, or want anything. I did it all. I did it all for them. Explain how you found out who your father was. I think everybody knows that has read the book, and for the ones that don't know, I mean. Um, he stayed right across the street. Um, obviously, it was one of those uh, those relationships that you know he had outside of his marriage, and um, obviously um, he had me, and I didn't know, and I guess they were trying to keep it quiet, you know, for a period of time till your, your mother and your grandmother didn't tell you initially. No, no. So I I, I didn't know who my dad was, and I have a uh, I have two other sisters, and the older of the two sisters. You know, I thought her dad was my dad, and so it wasn't until, like I said, we all, it was a small town, so I stayed right across the street. I stayed with my grandmother, so my dad lived across the street, and my mom stayed, you know, elsewhere. And, you know, just like all kids play in the neighborhood, you know, as a teenage boy, started liking one of the girls um, in the neighborhood, and, and he caught, you know, wind of that and, and, and heard that I was liking my sister. and. Again, he felt the need he had to tell me, you know, that, you know, the girl that you're in fact liking, that's your sister. So, you know, can't go down that road. <laughs> How old were you? Uh, I think I was around like 10, 11. I wasn't even a teenager yet. How close are you and your father now? I mean, we're, we're not as close, but I mean, you know, if there's a need to communicate, you know, we do. But I mean, not as close as a, a father and son, I would say, should be. Um, but considering, you know, um, the inactivity of, of us and him being involved in my life, I mean, you can't really expect more than what it is right now. How do you think, looking back, that affected you growing up? You know, it, it has affected me growing up because I never had that, that father figure in, in the household, you know, to, you know, do things you know, with their sons. Um, as one would would do, um, so I mean, I always you know had my mom or my grandmother, um, you know, had an occasional uncle here and there, but you know they were doing their own thing, starting their own lives, had their own kids, and so uh, I wasn't you know much of a 
priority or responsibility for them. So um, I also like just just a loner in a sense. But you know, like I said, I had two two great individuals in my mother and my grandmother that did a great job. And you touched on this some already, but like, what about that situation do you think's impacted you as a father? Um, I think it's impacted me somewhat in a negative and a positive way. You know, I understand the negatives and I think in order to correct those negatives, you know, I had to take it upon myself um, to, to take more of a different or a proactive approach to, to be in my kids' lives. And so, um, again, you know, I'm not with any of the mothers, so it's hard to have that day-to-day -day, uh, interaction or contact. But I, I, I try and I tend to, when I have them, make those moments count. Um, you know, despite um, the lack of time that, that I share, you know, with them, but when I'm with them, I, I try to make the most of it and make those, those, those moments last. You wrote in your book, quote, when I saw the true state of my finances, I realized that I did not have the financial security that I thought I had. And that was back in, I think, 2004, 2005, around the time that you were uh, switching agents, I believe. At that time, like, how much of a difference was there between like, w what you thought you had versus what you actually had? Um, I think it was a considerable uh, difference considering, you know, like I said, I had played with San Fran for eight years and then obviously um, got a new contract with the Philadelphia Eagles. And so, um, again, just me just not being smart enough, responsible enough um, to be on top of my financial situation and, and especially when the thing is, is I opened up and I trusted, you know, the people that were around me, that were around my family, and they looked my family in the eyes, my brothers and sisters, and, and, and when they spoke to me, I felt like they were speaking to them, that they would have my best interest at heart. And so, you know, that was, uh, that was really eye-opening to understand, you know, um, my financial state at that time. And, you know, again, it was you know, with, with all you know athletes you know they're going to come they're going to encounter that at, at some point and you know you just got to be responsible explain what happened in the not too distant past uh with the money allegedly being stolen from you um like i said it's just a mismanagement you know of of my funds and so you know not to go too in depth uh, uh, about it you know obviously with pending um litigation and, and, and things of that nature. Um, yeah, it's just me just not being responsible, I guess, number one, and just being, um, taking that extra time to to monitor, you know, what I've worked so hard for. Was it you not being responsible or were people just blatantly taking advantage of you that were supposed to be the ones managing your money? Right, I mean, I think that's what they're hired for. You know, obviously they have a job and obviously, you know, as the client, you know, those are services that they, they should be providing. You know, I think they have a fiduciary duty uh, to do some of those necessary things. And, you know, whether it was blatant or not, or I don't know, discreetly being done, um, nonetheless, it was happening, and I think it was just a matter of just neglect and, and, and not and, and being taken advantage of. You made north of, I think, $50 million 
dollars during your career, probably more than that, which um, you know for the average person sets them up financially several lifetimes over. To what extent are you not financially secure for the rest of your life due to kind of the mismanagement? Well, I think you know I think with some of the, the interviews that I've done and obviously obviously with you know um, you know me going through a lot of child family loss situations, um, things that have been made public knowledge, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, he's broke, this and that. I mean, I have money. I mean, if you want to look at me and say I'm broke and famous, that's cool. But um, to me, I, I wouldn't say I'm broke, you know, maybe in a financial bind. But to, uh, to, to say that I'm broke, I think that's that's a stretch. And I think, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a cowardly way for people to, I guess, you know, um, categorize someone. I want to mention some of your touchdown celebrations and just kind of get your kind of quick thoughts that come to mind for each right. celebration. How, how about the <laughs> uh, when you were with the 49ers, the celebration on the Cowboys star? Man, it was, uh, try to keep it quick and short. I mean, it was one of those moments where we go in and, uh, you know, we, we practice plays and go over and try to get familiarized, uh, familiarize ourselves with the field and, you know, the turf and kind of go over plays on a, on a Friday and then um, so we basically had a, a practice there, you know, and as receivers, we came up after practice. We just happened to be right there on the star. I mean, we got ready to break it down, uh, like one, two, three, hard work, and, you know, one of those things. And so I looked down, and we're smack dab in the middle of the field. We're at the star. So I told, you know, my coach, I was like, man, if I score, I'm going to come here tomorrow. It had nothing to do with anything about disrespecting the star. And I see how a lot of people saw that as, as such. but. It had nothing to do with that. I mean, I wasn't, you know, trying to take any shots or anybody or anything. And so, you know, again, I scored a touchdown, ran to the star. People thought, and, and at that time, we were beating, we were beating the devil out of the, yeah. out of the Cowboys at that point. So, you know, I did it. They didn't like it. How about the Sharpie? Uh, spur the moment. One of those creative moments that I thought, you know, up in my head at that at time on the sideline. Um, I had told my friend I would give him a football. You know, I had met him the night, uh, a couple of nights before the game. I told him if I scored and, and if it was, you know, because he told me what section of the end zone or what end of the end zone he was going to be in. And so I just said, so I don't know how it all just came into play, but I, re I realized we were going to that, to that end of the end zone. He was going to be sitting there. So I just have asked, happened to ask the guy, I was like, okay, well, you know, let me get a Sharpie. And he was like, why? And I was like, ah, just let me get a Sharpie. So I got it. You know, gave it to me, walked on about his business, I stuck it down in my sock, went out for the next series or whatever, and then I'm on the left side, I catch a, I catch a fade or something, over Sean Springs, I score a touchdown, took it out, signed it, gave it to the guy, that was it. It wasn't anything about me showing him up, I just added a little flair to me actually giving him the ball, you know, when I scored. Pom-poms? Again, one of those spur the moment things, you know, I, I, I know it was raining, soggy. I go down the middle, down to, uh, I was in the slot, catch the pass. I think McKenzie or somebody's on me. I'm dragging him to the end zone, excited about the touchdown, trying to get the fans into it. I go to the, to, to the cheerleader and she looks at me and I was like, pom-pom. So I just get the pom-pom, shake them, throw them up in the air, walk off the field. Okay, one that had to at least have required a little more thought, maybe even a little practice, uh, the Ray Lewis impersonation. 
Yeah, uh, that yeah that one really took a little. It didn't take a, a whole lot of practice. Did you stand in front of the mirror and like? No, I'm. I I, I can dance. You know, I, I mean, I. I oh, can, excuse me. I can dance. I, when I was little, you know, I break danced. I, I I did the Michael Jackson and stuff. I entered a couple of contests. So yeah, and it, you actually had a Michael Jackson glove that was oh, made yeah. to fit your hand. I understand. Absolutely, absolutely. My mom was a seamstress, so I tried to take on the whole person, you know impersonation of Michael Jackson when I was younger so I had the pants you know with the flush she made me socks in order to get the glitter effect of, of the socks she basically got some glue put it on the socks put the <laughs> glitter on there dude I was I was styling then <laughs> and so uh, yeah so I mean I, I I have a little history and a little background of dancing so you know I've seen Ray Lewis do his thing and uh, you know again I just kind of practiced it a couple of times you know in the weight room and then, you know, we played them and I scored. And at that time, did I know I was going to do it at that particular time? No, but it was just that moment. You know what I mean? And we were at the goal line. I had kind of made a couple of good moves and just the hard work to get in there. I was like, why not? So that's when I did it. One of your friends told me uh, that you had said to your friend that you owe like the first three to four years of your career to Jerry Rice because of what you learned from him. Uh, what, what was it like? playing with JR? Man, I, I mean, I guess you can kind of, I don't know if you can put it in context or any parallel situations or similarities um, as to guys that played with Michael Jordan or guys that played with Kobe, you know, or with LeBron, you know, for me, I mean, Jerry's the greatest of all time. So, you know, guys that are, you know, playing with superstars and, and guys that are put in the same breath as Hall of Famers and uh, whether they're Super Bowl champions, NBA champions, I mean, to, to, to play with somebody like that and, you know, for me, to have a locker right next to him, I mean, you can't get any better than that. You know, I can't imagine, you know, somebody having a locker next to Michael Jordan or Kobe or LeBron. I mean, that's something that you really can't, it's sometimes, undescribable um, but he, he meant so much to me because from where I come from like and me coming from a high school with a number of athletes that were, were a whole lot better than I was stronger and faster than I was and to now be on the same platform same field and the same breathing the same air as this guy it's it's hard to put into words I understand you learned a lot from him from a route running perspective. What all did you learn from him? You know, the things that I learned from Jerry, I kind of watched, you know, I watched from afar. Uh, Jerry was very accessible if, if needed. Um, you know, I would ask him questions uh, if I had any about certain route running um, skills um, that he possessed. But I mean, sometimes, you know, some people, they just have that ability to, to do whatever it is that they, 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 they do. And Jerry's one of those guys, you know, just like Michael Jordan. They're just, you know, it seems like that's what they were put on this earth to do. And, and he's one of those guys. So, I mean, I learned a lot. You know, I learned a lot, obviously, from him, you know, just being physically out there, just watching him run on the, on the football field. Um, and I, I learned a lot, too, just, just chalkboard talk and just really just learning a lot about the position, coverages, uh, things of the nature. And that's, that's where the coaching um, part came into and uh, I just had to just learn in order to be a better receiver and be the best at what I wanted to to, to, to become and obviously like I said Jerry set that bar 
and you know, once I made the team, you know, the rest was history. I just had to just kind of just hone in on my skills, and that was it. It wasn't an overnight process. I mean, it took years, you know, um, as I played with Jerry, and then even when I when Jerry left, and I kind of sort of like, you know, he sort of passed the baton or torch on to me. I had to I had to be that guy. A uh, last notable moment I wanted to touch on. Uh, maybe it's notable for the wrong reasons, but I think also the right reasons because it shows your work ethic and commitment. Uh, 2004 Eagles regular season game against the Cowboys, you hear a pop and have this searing pain through your lower leg. The Eagles were on a tear that season, looking likely they could make it to the Super Bowl. Uh, you find out you had broken your leg, uh, minimum 10 weeks recovery time, Super Bowl six and a half weeks away, uh, hyperbaric chambers, pool treadmills, taking uh, amino acids intravenously. Um, I mean, you, 20 pills a day, I think, you name it, you were doing it. Elaborate on what the rehab entailed. Man, I, I honestly, I thought, you know, with how excruciating the pain was and how I felt, you know, after I had the MRI and I eventually I ended up having the surgery um, there in Baltimore, um, Dr. Myerson, um, you know, so I came back home, I'm thinking, okay, I'm just gonna chill for like a week and then start rehab. The day after surgery, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the HydroWorks pool. But by, by choice or because no, they were No, this you? is, this is, and aggressive in order because I, I had told him like I wanted to try to make it back for the Super Bowl so obviously at this point in time time really wasn't on my side so I'm like man so this is this is a an accelerated um, rehab program that they put me on so dude I, I every morning that I got up for the probably like two to three weeks after that because I had to sleep with my foot elevated every morning that I put my foot down I wanted to cry. Like that was probably like the most excruciating pain ever to feel. Just having like I mean, fresh off of surgery, foot elevated all night, then that blood rushed down to the area. Dude. No, that bad. Dude. <laughs> it it was it was painful. Well, it paid off. Obviously, you end up making it back in time, playing in the game, playing well. Um, to to what extent do you think you put your career in jeopardy by playing in that game? Oh, I put, I put everything on the line because as I progressed with my rehab and then, you know, I started, you know, I remember the week of, or the week before, yeah, it may have been the week of uh, our travel to Jacksonville, you know, guys were coming in the locker room, you know, on a weekly and daily basis, you know, seeing, you know, seeing how was I feeling, you know, and I told Dawkins, I'm like, I'm gonna play in that Super Bowl. I'm like, you know, you know, at that, before, prior to that, I told him like, you guys get us to the Super Bowl, I'm gonna play. So once they made it, you know, throughout the playoffs, and then we ultimately got that bid to go to the Super Bowl, dude, like the, the acceleration of, of, of rehab, it, that, that everything kicked up uh, a few notches. And so, man, I, I, I can't explain, it's just, they put me you know, through, through something that I never really thought I, I could really achieve, but I mean, I just had faith in God that I, I would make it, and then I could just pull myself through it every day, just, just grinding it out, grinding it out, and again, I ended up making it, uh, you know, 
that week I ran ran a couple of routes. Guys started seeing me, so we went down to actually get on the field because it was cold during that time during Philly. So we had a they had a practice inside at the bubble, and I was already inside. So I was running some sprints with the uh, with the with, uh, with the the parachute on it, and then I was doing some ring drills, you know, trying to you know get start weight bearing so I started running around a little bit so guys started to kind of get encouraged mm -hmm. like oh man so once I, those guys saw me running around I think it kind of boosted everybody's uh, you know emotions up to the point like okay he's coming back and so I had no I had no doubt that I would come back um, it was just a matter of, of how and when, and when I got on that field, would I be able to perform? And, you know, I was talking to a pastor at that time, you know, that Trotter had introduced me to, so my faith was definitely, my faith was intact, you know, to the point that, like, I had no, no doubt at that time, like, you know, it's, it's a matter of just getting there and making it happen. Someday, when somebody looks back at your Hall of Fame career, how would you like to be viewed? Man, I get this question all the time, and it's really, I think it's, it's all up to that individual. I mean, for me, I think, you know, it's, it's always going to be, there's always going to be some discretion as to, or to some discrepancy of how I am as a, as a teammate or how I was as a teammate. Um, I'm always going to be viewed as that guy that destroyed locker rooms. And, and is that fair to say? maybe from a journalistic standpoint because you're only getting bits and pieces of it. But if you're there on an everyday basis, and if you, I, I guarantee if you interview enough and uh, enough teammates from every team, they'll tell you that was nothing but a great teammate. But I understand how powerful the media is um, and how people gravitate um, to every word that, you know, that comes out of broadcasters, commentators, journalists, mouths, or what they read, they take that as the Bible. Um, and I think this world will probably be a better place if maybe, you know, the teachings of the Bible were on ESPN. Maybe we would be at a better place. <laughs> There's a headline. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because everybody hangs on every word and everything that is said, you know, on ESPN or these, uh, uh, these, uh, these 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 networks so you know what I can only be satisfied with, with what I was able to do um, considering you know it was just pretty much a it was a blank canvas you know in the beginning and I pretty much just painted a, a, a picture of of what is a what I'm able to do or what anybody is able to do um, when you put in the right work and, and go a thing, go go about things the right way. Um, again, I'm not, you know, going to be glorified as somebody like your your Jerry Rice or Steve Young. I'm not going to probably going to be seen uh, in, in the best of lights, you know, like those guys. But even with Jerry Rice, he had his hardships, he had his ups and downs. You know, to to what degree um, compared to mine, maybe not as much. But everybody has made made mistakes, you know. Um, but you know what? It is what it is. Right. I mean, a, a poor kid who wasn't supposed to achieve anything, who achieved the pinnacle of his sport. Yeah. And for me, I know that, you know, like I said, I, I'm blessed beyond 
what I can even imagine. You know, like I said, people say, you know, bring up the idea that I'm chasing records or things like that. I know what I'm capable of, and I, I know what I can do, um, considering um, that I've played on other teams where they've had number one receivers. I've come in and on those teams and, and outplayed those guys. I realized what my stats could be, considering had I not gotten suspended in, in, in Philly. Um, you look at where my numbers are now, it's, it's a no-brainer. But they are what they are, and I'm proud of where, I, where they are and what they are and, and, and what I've done to accomplish those. How do you think you handle dealing with frustration and difficulties? Um, I didn't handle them well at all. Um, probably should have taken some time to think about some of the things that, that the comments that I made or remarks or in response to, to a lot of things. And um, yeah, just went with the, the beat of my own drum as far as how I should have been dealing with it. Um, probably should have, you know, um, you know, had somebody right there in my corner, you know, helping me along the way um, of, of how to address those issues. Um, you know, I had some people around me, but you know, those weren't the right people, I think, you know, to have handled those situations at that time, you know, looking back on it. Uh, emotionally, from the start of your professional career to now, what's been the most challenging period for you, personally? Um, just, uh, you know, obviously just getting back on track and, you know, trying to recover, uh, recoup my monies that was mismanaged, lost, stolen. Um, so in recent time is right. the most challenging? Yeah, that's, yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, the, diff the difficulties of, you know, trying to maintain a relationship and, um, you know, just, just all of that. And I, I just think, you know, I was just, I felt like probably I was invincible and I could just make things work, you know, say the right things or do the right things and things will just go whip right back into shape and, um, and come to realize, you know, things that they don't always work that way. But, you know, it's a part of, part of life. You know, I'm striving to be a better person. You know, um, overall, I'm trying to be a better man, better, be a better father. Um, just, you know, you know, try to make an impact in my kids' lives uh, as, they, as they grow up. And I can tell, you know, with, with the interaction of my sons and, and my kids that I'm doing that. Really a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.